Next Sunday will be a big week. When the generosity of God's people will bear fruit in this place. But before I get around to that this morning, I need to introduce a couple of somebodies to you this morning. They're here worshiping with us and in our midst, people that we're connected to directly and indirectly, but connected all to in the power of God's love. First of all, I want to introduce John and Rebecca Scarborough, who are here this morning worshiping with, with us. They are missionaries and serving YWAM, I'm told is the way you say that, with his Youth with a Mission. And they're here this morning. I want you to greet them with your love and support. It is our privilege to support all that you do in that place as you take the word of the God to those who need it so desperately as we all do. Also this morning we are joined in worship as a guest of the Ramos family, Dr. Gladys M. I'm told to call her name M because it's so hard to pronounce they didn't want to see me butcher it. So she is uh, here as a member of the Committee on Christian Unity and Interreligious uh, Relationships under the Council of Bishops. She's here, um, uh, I think, uh, as a part of FUMC Richardson as well. She represents the Philippine Central Conference of the United Methodist Church, and she's also the dean in the College of Education Wesley, at Wesleyan University in the Philippines. Dr. Gladys, will you please stand and let us greet you. I'm so glad you came in time for stewardship. We're looking for a little help. So we're glad you're here. Stewardship, that sermon series we all yearn to hear. I know you want me to preach about it every month, but this is the last month I'm going to target mainly stewardship, and we're going to celebrate your acts of stewardship next week. I wanted to talk about it in a little different way this morning. I've been reading some things and contemplating stewardship in some new angles, and so I wanted to end up kind of where I think the summary of my thought has taken me at this particular time in my Christian walk. I want to talk about the generosity gene. You know, it's one thing to have genes passed on to us by our parents, and some of them are, are wanted genes and some of them not so wanted, right? I mean, uh, some things were passed along. I used to remind my wife all the time that my family tended to the heavy side of life. And she said, yeah, you do because you all tend to the fork side of life. Well, she didn't actually say that, but she thought a lot of other worse things. I thought I'd be nice this morning, dear. Thank you. Okay, good. I'm starting off on a good note. I want you to remember that in case I don't end there. <laughs> the generosity gene is not really a gene as far as I know. However, I think it's the idea of it is important to us. You know, a gene is something that's transferred from a parent to an offspring. It's, it's, it's kind of deterministic in some ways. In the offspring, you get the way you look by a combination of genes. It's an amazing number of genes, not only from your parents, but from your grandparents and other family members as well as it's passed down. And all these genes, of course, are made up of the DNA that we are a part of. They are functional, and they are also physical unit of heredity, who we are because of who are our parents. I say this and start off in this way because I want the parents and the grandparents of this congregation to be well aware that not all the things we need in this world are passed along through physical genes and DNA. Some of the things that we really need in this life, if we're going to be all that God wants us to be, 
can't come through the physical passing on of, of the DNA that people have. Some of it is learned, but yet passed on through the learning through the generations of family members. One of the great advantages of being a part of the Christian family, if we don't forget it, or grow so accustomed to it that we take it for granted, is what we have been taught since we were small children coming to the church, in Sunday schools and in classes, sitting at grandmothers and grandpa's knees, aunts and uncles, even neighbors in some way as an extended family. What they can pass on to us cannot always be passed on through physical realities. I'm a perfect example of that. I, I really didn't get born with a generosity gene, and neither was one really passed on to me. I think it was something that had having to do with my parents and their generation and their place in life and what they had. It always seemed so necessary uh, to live that very ba kind of basic life that we lived, although I didn't know what basic meant then. I certainly do now. No, I had to have that passed on to me in a different way. I had to get married to find the generosity gene. Because, you know, I was kind of a, a begrudging tither. And only that because my wife em embarrassed me into believing that I ought to be a tither. And, you know, if I've told the story before. I think I told it last year. You know, she became and I became convicted we ought to start tithing. And so I wanted to work toward a plan of doing it. Because I thought that was the here all and in all. Just If I could just become a tither. And after a couple of weeks and of arguing with my wife about if we were going to tithe, we ought to start now. And I explained to her how the budget looked, and she didn't know much about that at that point in our life. And that's really true. I was on the kind side. She was a young bride. And so, uh, but she had so much faith, she said, well, I just think if we're going to tithe, we should just go ahead and do it. And I went off to myself mumbling, saying, well, this is a crazy woman I married. Doesn't she know that the car payments are due? She's going to school. Doesn't she get it? Doesn't she know God would be embarrassed if we didn't pay our payments for our bills, right? And we don't want to embarrass God. Well, that only lasted two or three weeks, and that, the Spirit just wouldn't leave me alone about it. And I, it might have been one of my earliest confessions to my wife. I don't do that often. I have to live with her. I don't want her being insufferable. But I had to come back to her and say, these hardest of words to say to your spouse. I've decided you're right. <laughs> oh, man, it's hard to get out. Still have to clear my throat just to say it. And there was a certain amount of terror that invaded my body, but I said, we're going to do it. I don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to start tithing. Look at how much money that's going to be. I don't know how we're going to do it, but you and God seem set on this thing, so we're going to do it. A begrudging tither. It worked out very well. And, you know, for a long time, I was content with tithing. I thought, wow, we're tithers. And then I went into ministry and, and realized that really did mean something. There weren't a whole lot of us in church. I didn't know how that happened, but most of the churches I went to, tithing was a foreign concept. And it seemed like this great, huge thing to attain to. But as my life has gone along, I began to yearn for something more. I, I, I wanted to schedule our finances in such a way that we were always doing more than tithing. That we were always going above and beyond that which was said about in the 10% thing in the church. I also became convinced that as a United Methodist in this world in which we live, tithing for me compared to tithing from someone in most of the other parts of the world is not really a very challenging goal. In fact, it's kind of an embarrassing goal. Now, some of you may say, well, I'm not embarrassed and I'm not tithing yet. Uh, well, you will be before I'm through this morning, I think. <laughs> That's my goal. 
is to help you get to a place of life that is not legalistic in any way, get to a place of giving in your life that is not motivated in any way by what the rule is or what the law is, but rather is motivated by what you have received from God and what is in your heart as you identify with God and the relationship you have with God. For you see, when Jesus came to this earth and gave his life for us, it was to give us something far more precious than we often claim. It was to establish something within us that was far more powerful than we often allude to or even yearn toward. And a great illustration, illustration of that is in this story about this wee little man. Remember the song you learned as a child, this wee little man? I don't remember the song. You're thankful for that, I know. But this, um, you better remember, the youth can probably sing it. Should I have you stand and sing? Uh, now you're looking up. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm sure you're not on your phones unless you're blogging my sermon. Don't you get whiplash over there with your necks popping up. But The reality is, this little man was short in stature, but oh, he was big and bunny because he was a dreaded tax collector, which meant he was given a number to extract from the people to pay the taxes to Rome, and anything else he could get out of them was his. You can imagine what happened. The tax system was abused mightily, and the tax collector sent his taxes, and then he became rich in the process. That's why they were so hated by the Israelites, because they collected money for Rome, which was not their heavenly home anyway, or their ruling authority, and it was administrated by these people. And so despised were these people that tax collectors did not even, were not even permitted into the synagogues. Now, Zacchaeus was so good that he was to the head of the class, and he was the most hated man in the district in which he lived. But he had heard about this Jesus. He wanted to see him. Can you imagine this little guy trying to get through the crowd of people who are larger than he is? And none of them like him. They all know him, but they don't want him to have the pleasure of seeing Jesus. Can you imagine how beat up the boy was before he got to the head of the class, trying to get through the crowds that were lying to see this man Jesus? Anyway, he finally just escapes to a tree and climbs up in it so he can at least get a glimpse of this man he's heard so much about. There was a yearning inside of him despite his financial accomplishments that pushed him to want to meet this extraordinary man that he was hearing so much about. He made every effort humanly possible to get there, and lo and behold, not only did he see Jesus, but not surprising to us, Jesus saw him. And not only did Jesus see him, but he saw inside of him at the yearning that was there. So he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. Uh, I'm going to be a guest at your house tonight. They called the medics in, and they ministered to several rabbis who were astonished at such a crazy idea of going to eat with this sinner. Uh, was just despite themselves. They just couldn't believe it. I'm sure their mouths were hanging open as Jesus walked off with this wee little man who turned out not to be so small after all. Because in the course of the meeting with Jesus, he told Jesus, half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor. Half, not 10%. Of half of what I have I'm going to give to the poor. And to anyone that I have defrauded or wronged, I'm going to restore to them fourfold what I took from them when I should not have taken it. And what does Jesus say? The words are classic, aren't they? Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Salvation has come to this house, not just to Zacchaeus, but to his house. Because you see what he had experienced and how he had responded to this man Jesus who had reached out to him even as he was reaching out to Jesus changed him immensely. And his first and natural response to the salvation of God was generosity. His life exploded into generosity. He suddenly wanted to give back what he had. A huge amount in his day, I'm sure. And not only that, but he wanted to right every wrong that he had done to others in the name of his power and position. Generosity seems to be in this passage, in this text, a first and most natural response to having received the grace and the love of God into his own life. Now, I tell you that to say this. I have found in my years of ministry that has not always been so in the church since then. That the most, the last thing, in fact, to get really converted in most Americans' lives as they come to Christ is their checkbook and their pocketbook and their savings accounts. In fact, many people said it, a wise man said it a long time ago, that the last thing to be converted is a person's pocketbook. It's not original to me. And you say, well, why is that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because we're sinful. Maybe it's because we're blasé about receiving eternal life. I do believe that's true. You know, people used to say, and I used to believe that when you say the Apostles' Creed, it gets to be boring along with the Lord's Prayer because you keep saying it over and over every Sunday, and pretty soon people just go to sleep and their mouths move. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord and Savior. And yeah, it's just something they do. But you know, it doesn't have to be that way. You could pray the Apostles' Creed and be overcome by the 20 centuries of Christianity that it empowers. You could be overcome going all the way back to the Father of Jesus God, the Father of all creation, and saying that affirmation of faith could wipe you out. But that's a lot of trouble, right? I mean, it's easier to get excited about a song and sit down. Saying some words and getting all hopped up about it, we don't always do that because we get comfortable with it. We get comfortable with our salvation. We get comfortable with the idea that we know so well in the South. Well, after all, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. What do you expect? My answer is becoming in my old age a lot more. I expect a lot more. I expect you to respond in kind to what you have received. You have received, for goodness sakes, eternal life that you enjoy right now and the benefits of communion with a God who created you. I would like for you to live up to that standard of being like a person who's overwhelmed by the love of God. In their song, we sing it, it has a line there, overwhelmed by the love of God. There he is. Don't try and pull it out at the last minute. <laughs> Just a private joke. David is so good at that. Overwhelmed by God's love. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Wow, that sounds really exciting, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to heaven one of these days. Yeah, maybe, maybe not so much. You see, somebody that really knows they're going to heaven has got to be getting really excited. And you know, when someone dies in your family and you know they're a Christian, funerals ought to be experiences of the overwhelming joy of the ones that really do not die. Remember, I'm not dying. If you want to die, that's fine, but you don't need to. 
You're just going to change suits like going to your closet. You walk in, you walk out dressed perfectly. I know I'm not, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't shake a thing, just wiggling my pants, right? Come out different. Come out changed. Why not come out generous? And you say, well, I'm generous. I, I do the best I can. No, most of us don't. We're good at building bigger barns for our excess. We're good at building retirement accounts because, after all, nobody's going to feed us when we get old. There's some truth to that. But just how big a barn do you need? How many barns do you need? I'm so worried about this company that's building storage houses all over this land. You know, they're more prolific than apartments. And you know what they are, right? They're places for us to put our treasures that we no longer need anymore. I only want to see when we move or maybe two or three times a year when we use them or go back to remember, oh, yeah, that's there. That's mine right there. It's, it's an argument that goes on in our garage. Part of our garage is our storage closet. It's free, sort of. And so there's a certain amount of space for storage, and we go through it every so often. And when we really have progress is when Sally goes through my side. <laughs> that stuff not so necessary anymore. Uh, but her side, no, nah, stay away from there. That was the girls' dresses when they were this big. I don't know what that's got to do with now because they're not this big anymore. And nobody's going to wear them, including their kids now. But we got them in case they need them. Or in case I lose a lot of weight. <laughs> you see, this generous response by Zacchaeus was more than the Jewish law required. And the Jewish law required that if it was a violent and evil kind of way that you took defrauded a person, you had to return 4%, four times what you took. But this, this was not considered that kind of an offense. He could have just gotten by with just restoring it, but he didn't want to go just that far. And there's no admonition to get half of what he had away at this point. No admonition for that. He just did it out of the reflex of the life he had received. He became, if you will... Like God. How I wish generosity were a gene that we could all just be born with. We could arrive with a generous gene. And once we accepted Christ, we would become generous. You say, well, what, what, exactly what are you talking about? Thank you for asking that question. Because, you see, the point of heaven, the point of salvation, rather, is not just heaven, as you've heard me say many times. It's also the beginning and then we renew it in the continuing of a relationship with God through Jesus. Is that the point of salvation? Mm, yes, but it's also the reality of transformation that begins once we are in that saving relationship. And, and is that all? No, 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 no. It's also the beginning of the trek to return to the image of God that we were created to be, to the best we can be on this earth. It is a changed life here and now, that carries over and ushers us into, if you will, the seed of God whenever we leave the body that we're in. So salvation is not just a relative change between us and God. You know, now we're friends with God where once we were enemies because of our sin, because of the blood of Jesus and our faith, we're now in a relationship with God. That's wonderful, but it's also a what? In the South, we know this. It's a new birth, right? The Baptists are not the only ones that believe in new birth. We Methodists believe in it too. Regeneration, a new life that is born inside us. The transformation progress begins at that point of new birth. Then the regeneration begins as well. 
And we have a lifetime here on earth to continue to be changed, which we call sanctifying grace, more and more into the image of God. Salvation is about all of that stuff. It's not about just that moment when now we're friends with God. We say, well, that's good enough. Well, no, it's not. In fact, you can't have just that. Unless you're hanging on a cross beside Jesus and about to die anyway. There won't be much chance for anything else at that point. But if you've got years left to live and you just want to sit down on your I'm going to heaven plate, that plate gets cracked along the way. You see, God intends for you to have eternal life now. Throughout the Old Testament and also the New, it's very clear that to be saved is much more than something you get in the sweet by and by. It's a quality of life that begins now with love and joy and peace as its characteristics. It is a recreation of the image of God and nothing less in you and me. When we settle for anything less, we're robbing ourselves of the uniqueness of the Christian faith and endangering our relationship and our fellowship with God. Now, Paul, when he was writing to the church at Ephesus in the fifth chapter, verses 1 and 2, he said, be imitators of God as beloved children. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us sacrificially, so we must love others. Gave himself for us sacrificially. I'm so glad I don't know what everyone gives for all the different causes you give. And you're so glad you don't know what I give. And if you're not, I'm glad for you. Because, you know, what is sacrifice? Some of you feel like you're living sacrificially. And you are as long as you compare yourself to some neighbors you know or some other family members. We do live sacrificially. Every one of us can say that, I, I, I think. Now, I know there's a few of you that may make enough money that you don't know who you would compare yourself to. I don't know that. If you're wondering, if I'm wondering, yeah, I am. Uh, Because, you see, if you have been so blessed as to make huge amounts of money, God has a very big interest in your wealth to see if you're using it for you or if you're ready to put it to work in his kingdom. And that's a very threatening thought if you're a good American, red, white, and blue Texan. It's hard. To think about it in those terms. Because the more you make, then the more you give. And I don't don't mean because your percentage goes up. I mean the bigger percentage you give because you don't need the rest of it. Now, I'm probably only speaking to a handful of you. But even the rest of us who are living a very basic life and struggling to make ends meet. You know why we struggle? My brother stayed with us last night. He's over at the colony helping them worship this morning where he works part-time. We got to talking about retirement. And then we got to talking about numbers that you start living on retirement. My wife doesn't want to listen to this, so you can take a moment's vacation now, darling. Uh, she doesn't really like to hear about what it's going to be like after I retire. But it'll still be more money than we ever made for most of our marriage. Hello? It just won't be enough to live like we're living now. Are we going to starve? I'm counting on not. (laughs) You know, it's amazing how much seeds and nuts can cost you, however. You know, even you're eating that kind of stuff instead of beef and potatoes. Did I say potatoes? Can I hear an amen for potatoes? Potatoes are good. (laughs) Unfortunately, they're not that good for you. So God was both loving and joyful and had great peace, and so did his son Jesus. 
But both of them were also very generous. For God so loved that he gave sacrificially by giving the only child he had for your salvation and my salvation. We should be imitators of that kind of giving and that kind of God. What does that look like? Exodus 36, 5, they had called for the children of Israel to bring together all the things they need for the builders to build the tabernacle. You know how much they gave? They gave a ton, a ton. In fact, they brought so many things to the building of the tabernacle that finally Moses had to send a letter to them and say, quit bringing stuff, we can't use it all. I've never yet served a church where I had to say, quit giving the money, we got all we need for the rest of the year. I'd love to start, this year would be a good year. You know, just give so much that we can't spend it. That's what they literally did. They just kept bringing. And when you read the text, go back and read it in chapter 36. You see, they were so stirred up within that they wanted to keep bringing more. For the house of God, their deliverer. That's generosity. You say, yeah, those Old Testament folks, they, they went way out. Second Corinthians, New Testament, Church of Corinth. Now, brethren... Paul says to the church in Corinth, We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord begging us with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the church. The support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They gave out of their poverty, not out of their abundance. You say, well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Let's see. Verse 8 says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his Poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. I don't like the looks of our budget. The finance committee got all the numbers in. But it looks like we're going to have some really good new members soon. They're going to need to move in here for us to do all the things we're going to plan to do next year. And you say, well, what if they don't move in? Then I'm looking forward to some new members from within the family who are going to desire to make sacrificially the promotion of the gospel in Carrollton, Texas. You say, what do you mean, Carrollton, Texas? Let me tell you this about yourselves. I've got an appointment this week. Several have asked me about it. Don't bother. Don't worry. I'm not, I'm not saying anything that's not true. When I go to see the bishop and the district superintendent and the, one of the other heads of the conferences, but I want to lay out to them our challenge, our reality 
as I see it now after being here for 16 months or so. And then I want to suggest to them some ideas that I plan to pursue, but it needs a blessing from them. It needs them to move some of their thinking sideways. You know, I've never done that in 35 years. I'm really looking forward to the challenge of moving a bishop sideways. He's not in the house, is he? Let's see, make sure he's not out there. I don't see him. You don't need to tell him that. I'll tell him Tuesday. Pray for me Tuesday that I'm back at work Wednesday. But you see, it is a pivotal time, I believe, in the life of this church. We worship like none I've ever seen. We are blessed in our worship. Your giving makes that possible. We are blessed in our children's ministry. Children who come to church here have people who've been teaching for 25 years telling them about Jesus, just like a grandfather and grandmother does it. What a blessing, as well as young people doing the same. It wouldn't happen without y'all. You make that possible. Youth. We raise youth, and they have so many opportunities to become like Christ and to escape so many of the trials in the world. You know how come we do that? Because of your giving. Because of what you contribute to the ministries of this church, we are able to use that in creative ways so that they have a real chance of belonging to Christ when they leave this place to go out into the world on their own. Great stuff. We have Sunday schools. Have I told you about our Sunday schools lately? We're Methodists and we average 80%. Now, I know the Baptists sometimes brag about having more people in Sunday school and worship, and I understand that's a good thing to brag about. For their sake, it's probably because they're preaching so poor, but... <laughs> you know I'm just kidding, right? Please don't send me emails about that. <laughs> if we're doing anything right in Sunday school, truth is we probably learned it from them because they do it right. I've never been in a Methodist church that comes close to 80% of their worship service being in Sunday school if they were large at all. If they, if they were larger than 150 or 200, they didn't, have 40, they didn't have 80% of their people in Sunday school. You do. You know why you do? Because you have committed teachers who've given themselves to that, who've been teaching for years and years and years, and because you give money. You give money to support the Sunday school program. However, With all those good things going on, we're going to have to sacrificially give some more if we're going to get off this big old comfortable rock we're sitting on where we have great Sunday school, youth and children's ministries and worship for us. If we're going to get off that water and continue to have all those great things, including foreign missions that we excel on as a congregation. If we're going to get off the rock of doing those things well and also proclaim the gospel in Carrollton, Texas, it's going to take a new effort. It's going to take some new sacrifice. Because quite frankly, it's ours to do. Even though you do so many things so very good, it's not all that God has called us to do. I'm clear about that. Now, you might not be as clear about that as I am. I understand that. And because of that, I'm going to close with one more passage of Scripture today. I've used a lot of Scripture today, and I thought you ought to appreciate that. But also because I want you to understand how great is our need. I want you to understand that the gospel needs to be spread in Carrollton, Texas. With the best work we're doing, there's still probably half the community, at least, if not more than half, who don't have a really living, loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, I know more than half of them will tell you they're a Christian, and they'll also tell you they're not worshiping anywhere, which is kind of like telling you, I'm a Christian, <laughs> born a Texan, born a Christian. Doesn't work that way, does it? 
They're out there. Spiritual growth for ourselves, great. Worship for ourselves, great. Serving overseas, great. Evangelizing the city of Carolina, not so great. I don't know how people can love the Lord as much as you do, as I told you before, and if the church not be growing like crazy in this facility, in this place. You might say, well, because we're so worn out and doing so great in those other four areas. And I get that. But unfortunately for you, I have yet one more exercise for you, which is why I'm here. We got to bleed some right here in Carrollton, Texas. We got to work some right here in Carrollton, Texas. It's going to require new efforts. Some of you are saying, well, I can't do any more. Well, guess what? Look to your left and right, and you'll see others who can. You'll see other people who can. And maybe you can too if it becomes as sacrificial for you as your love for Jesus is as we proclaim. If we love our Savior as Lord, we can be inspired to do more than we ever thought regardless of our age or our station in life. I'm kind of through with generosity except for this. You say, well, what's your plan? This is my plan. We're going to take up those pledge cards, those estimate of giving cards next Sunday, and we'll take them up again for those who come in late, and we'll celebrate your faithfulness next week. You've got a week to pray about it. I want you to know that I'm praying for you. But I'm not praying exactly as I usually pray at this time. I'm not praying about the budget, which kind of makes Brian nervous and kind of makes Doug nervous too. But I'm... I believe that we can cut it if we have to. I just don't think we need to. I don't think God wants us to, which gives you and me a problem. So here's what I'm going to do about that problem, starting now and continuing through the rest of this year and through next year. I'm going to pray pray regularly and sincerely the prayer of a man who had a great need too, saw a great need. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother named him Jabez, saying, because I bore him with pain. This occurs in the midst of the genealogical uh, moving forth of Israel. And it's in the midst about these are the sons of Edom, these are the sons of Gedor, these are the sons of Ashtar, all kinds of names everywhere. And then right here in the middle of all that, as an intrusion, you might say, in the text, we find these two verses. Now Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, that it may not pain me. And God granted him what he requested. Next verse. Shelob, the brother of Shuha, Eshton became the father of Bethrapah, Back to the genealogical stuff. But right there in those two little verses, something is said that I'm honing in on. Because you see, I think we're in that place. I believe we need to expand our borders of where God has called us to serve and take in our most immediate territory. I mean by doing that, we need to submit and commit our resources of time, talent, and money to that. I think we need to do that. I don't know who else is coming in the next year, but I think we need to do that. We need to reach out in that way. And I believe that this prayer is a call to us to do just that. It's a challenge. You've probably all read the book written by Mr. Wilkinson a long time ago. It got real popular. You know how we are in America. We love popular things, right? Well, that little book got real popular about his story. And I'm not going to say much about that except to say 
this. In regard to that prayer, this intrusion, if you will, into the story is literally Jabez saying, I want to be more and I want to do more for God. In fact, the text says he moved up in God's sight. He was more committed, we would say in our language, than his brothers were. And he cried out to God to bless him so that he would enlarge his borders and so he wouldn't have pain. And he asked God to bless him, bless him so that he might be preserved from harm so he might feel the hand of God in his life. I'm praying that for you. Now, you say, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like this way. I'm praying for it for you. So if you get a raise, I'm praying God gave it to you. <laughs> you say, what does that mean? That means the church gets a raise. If you get a raise, you need to ask yourself, is this because I'm sweet? Or is this because God blessed me and answered to a cry of a portion of his people who had a task they need to accomplish? You say, well, how much of my raise are you wanting? Oh, that would be way too easy to tell you that. I could say all of it, or I could say half of it, but I'm not doing any of that. That's between you and God. But if you get a raise, I'm just saying that some of that, I believe, is coming because of my prayer. And you say, yeah, but I've been praying for a raise a long time. <laughs> well, maybe your prayer and my prayer can come together and get all mingled in the cup, right? Like coffee and sugar, it's better with a little sugar, right? You say, why, Doug, why? Why this big push? Because we have a tool. In fact, we are the tool that God wants to use in this place to save these people that we can reach out and touch, as well as God wants us to reach out and continue to touch them in Africa, in South America, in Cambodia, and all those other places. I know you've given offerings this morning to go to Cambodia. Don't give less. Enlarge our territories. I'm praying for the kind of blessing that will allow me to do something I've never been able to do before. I don't know how I'm going to get that. I don't know if someone of you has left me in your will and you're going to kick the bucket so I get it. If so, I'm kind of sorry for that. You say, that's not really funny, Doug. No, it's not. But I'm praying for God to enlarge my territory and your territory. You say, but it's so... We're doing so many so good. Why can't you just accept that? Well, I do accept it, and I'm thankful for it. It's just not enough. You say, how do you know that? Because I know the people of Carrollton are dying for United Methodist Witness that changes their lives. I've never seen a people more prepared to offer what they have than you are. It has to change where we live right now, right here, in order for us to be really and completely faithful. You say, well, you might be wrong. I might be. I might be wrong that God will bless us. <laughs> and in fact, he didn't think you're going to give it. I'm pretty certain he won't bless us. But I'm not wrong about there's a lot of saving work to do in Carrollton, Texas. I'm sure of that. I don't want to have to do it all by myself because I'm getting old. But whatever part I can do, I'm going to do. 
And I'm going to pray that God enlarges your territory so that you see part of your life needs to be reinvested right here in this city to fulfill the mission God had for this church 14 years ago when he moved you out here and gave you a new building in a new place where new people were coming. That's what I'm going to pray for. Enlarge our territory. Bless us. Because I believe you can count on us.